everyone. Welcome to Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Olivia. And I'm Sophie. And today we are delighted to be joined by Dr. Kaylin O'Connor, a philosopher of biology and behavioral sciences, a philosopher of science, and an evolutionary game theorist. She is a professor in the Department of Logic and Philosophy of Science at the University of California, Irvine, and is a member of the Institute for Mathematical Behavioral Science. She's authored two books, The Origins of Unfairness, Social Categories, and Cultural Evolution, and The Misinformation Age, How False Beliefs Spread, published through the Yale University Press. At CMC's Athenaeum, she also delivered a talk on the topic of misinformation and polarization of hydroxychloroquine during the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Dr. O'Connor. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Well, thank you for having me. Of course. Um, So we want to start by asking about the journey of your career, Um, specifically what got you interested in the field of philosophy and specifically the philosophy philosophy of science and what led you to where you are today? Um, I have a kind of unusual background for a philosopher. So my undergrad major was actually in filmmaking and I didn't study philosophy at all. Uh, But I had been really interested in biology. So I had these kind of dual interests in the sciences and humanities. And, you know, after a few years of working in documentary film and uh, digital media, I decided I wanted to do a PhD and I was kind of looking for ways to combine these interests. And I met someone who was um, studying philosophy of science, who later became my boyfriend and then husband. Uh, And so I (laughs) applied to a philosophy of science program and then just kind of fell into this area, fell into being a philosopher. It's usually something where people are like, I was passionate about philosophy my whole life and chased it down. So it's, yeah, kind of a funny story. Awesome. That's super interesting to hear. And to follow up, you mentioned that um, your husband, James Weatherall, actually, he co-authored your book, The Misinformation Age. And I was just wondering, um, what is it like working in such a specific field and, you know, having your husband at home and then your husband at work co-authoring this book as well? Well, it made the pandemic much less of an adjustment for us. I'll say that. I actually really like it. I've always liked working in the same department with my husband and in the same field because we have so much to talk about. You know, there's always new topics from work and people and, uh, you know, all of philosophy to chat about. Co-authoring together also went surprisingly well. I mean, at first we had some hiccups because you know, usually you have a more formal relationship with the co-author. So when they mess something up, you're like, oh, well, I had a different idea for that section. And when it's your husband, it's a little more like, why would you ever do that? (laughs) Uh, But we kind of worked out the kinks and actually had a really nice collaboration process because, you know, we've had 10 years of practice communicating before we had to communicate to write the book together. Yeah, I love that, like, kind of dual relationship going on. That's, like, interesting to hear about. Um, Kind of moving more specifically towards your kind of author career. um, I know your talk at the Athenaeum was focusing on your book, The Misinformation Age, but I'm also curious about your book on the origins of unfairness. Um, And I'm curious how just, obviously, that's kind of a heavier topic in the process of writing that book. I'm curious how it shaped or changed your worldview and perspective. Hmm. 
Oh my goodness, let me think about this. I mean, actually both topics ended up being sort of surprisingly heavy because in learning about misinformation, you know, we did all this reading on the history of industrial influence on public belief and the effects on public health and all of that, which was quite heavy. But of course, thinking about inequality and thinking about especially things like racism and sexism day in, day out for years on end is <laughs> heavy in its own way too. Um, I really learned a lot researching that book. So I read a lot of work by social scientists who were doing various empirical studies into inequity and norms and the way people develop, um, you know, beliefs about each other, the way they develop stereotypical beliefs, the way they uh, come to develop patterns of behavior um, oriented to different social groups. All of that was really fascinating. I felt like really gave me a much like deeper understanding of the ways people interact with each other and various inequalities. For sure. And so to follow up on that, I'm wondering like how did writing the misinformation age like impact your views on like common media outlets and news sources and just information generally propagated on the internet? Well, yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, I guess. Uh, I Definitely, it was a good opportunity to think more about the connections between avenues for traditional media and then social media and the way they interact with each other. And especially, we spent a lot of time thinking about, well, what are the ways that um, members of the traditional media are incentivized by social media? So it's always been the case, for example, that journalists want to write things that are really interesting or shocking or novel. And then we have various norms and constraints in journalism that say, well, of course, you're going to write things that are interesting, but you can't write things that are untrue and you can't exaggerate too much. And you have to, you ought to be objective in telling multiple sides of a story if they are there, things like that. Um, I think like social media uh, incentivizes that kind of novelty even more than before because of the clickbait phenomenon and people not sitting down to like watch a new show or sitting down to read a newspaper the way they used to. And it seems to be kind of interacting with norms and traditional media and a lot of journalists are having to kind of, um, you know, reassess what they're doing, come up with new rules of, uh, deportment to work in this new environment, I think. And all of that's been really fascinating. Yeah, so on that kind of social media topic, we were also curious what your thoughts on the recent political advertising ban across these social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook, like just what your thoughts are and if you think these bans change the rate at which false information spreads as it's often tied to things like political campaigns. I mean, it's really hard to know what, uh, if anything, the eventual <laughs> results will be from a ban like this. And part of the reason it's so hard to know is that people adapt to whatever changes you make online. Um, one way that we've talked about this and others have talked about this is as similar to an arms race where as one side develops a new technology or a new weapon, the other side develops a new defense, right? And so if we ban political advertisements, well, how do political groups respond? They're not gonna just do nothing and stop advertising, right? Um, so 
in that way, it's a little bit hard to know exactly what will happen. I mean, will they start to focus more on other ways of influencing opinion on social media? Will they set up sock puppets, for example? I suspect a lot of political groups do already. Um, will they focus on getting individuals, sort of everyday users, to try to drive uh, a lot of their publicity on large social media platforms? Will they um, move to new social media platforms that maybe don't have the same rules? I mean, will people set up specific social media platforms that are only for conservatives, say, or only for liberals? I mean, I think we're already seeing that a little bit with some platforms. Um, so yeah, that's, <laughs> that's just to say it's all murky. I don't know. <laughs> For sure. I, I think like that brings up a really interesting point. I think as a person who uses social media, like a lot of what I'm hearing is like that I sit in like an echo chamber where I only hear my own views reflected back at me or like very similar views. And so in that way, do you think that like young people sitting in these echo chambers is partially responsible for misinformation and does that like spur it forward? So people debate how important echo chambers are in determining people's eventual beliefs and do they actually have a bad impact like we might think they are. I'm inclined to think that the answer is yes, that at very least they make us um, much less knowledgeable about the state of other people in our society, right? So we don't know a lot about people who aren't in our political groups and in our social groups because we do tend to choose places online that reflect our own ideas back to us and feel comfortable. And so, um, you know, at very least they make us unaware of other people. And then of course there's always a worry that when you have people in these kind of uh, echo chamber groups, they also aren't getting all the relevant information about the world and about politics and events that are happening that they might if they had a more diverse group of connections, right? So, um, you know, if you are finding out about violence during the Black Lives Matter uh, protests this summer, if you're on one side of the political spectrum, you're probably only hearing about police violence. If you're on the other side, you're probably only hearing about um, you know, riots or broken windows of uh, businesses, and you're not hearing about the other events, right? And so I think that can really lead to, like, a problem where people don't know what's happening. Yeah, so on that note, I mean, I know in your talk at the Athenaeum, you touched on this idea of homophily, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Homophily, yeah. okay. Um, the tendency for people to seek out or be attracted to those who are similar to themselves. And I think, especially in the age of social media, do you see a way in which people can resist it? And if so, how? Yeah, so you can seek out those who are different from you and try to form connections with them. Of course, that's usually a very, it can be very psychologically unpleasant, right? To seek out someone who holds different political viewpoints or different viewpoints on reality. Um, and I sometimes worry, you know, when I'm talking about homophily or uh, if people ask questions about echo chambers, sometimes they walk away being like, oh, before I never engaged with my uncle who's a conspiracy theorist, but now I'll have to take some time <laughs> engaging with his ideas. And that's 
that's not necessarily the kind of thing that we want to promote. You know, the message isn't go engage with content that's misinformation or disinformation or just isn't supported by facts. Um, but it can be worthwhile to seek out people, say, who have different values, who have reasonable other opinions on uh, current events. I mean, one way to do this that's probably the most effective is to read news sources that are still centrist and still evidence-based and reasonable, but just maybe not entirely on your side of the social divide. So if you're conservative, read the New York Times more. And if you're a liberal, maybe read the Wall Street Journal. You know, and these are going to be opinions that are fact-based and reasonable to some degree, right, that you'll be engaging with. Of course. Um, yeah, that's really awesome. And I think I definitely agree with you that I even like doing something as simple as reading something that isn't normally in your scope of like news sources can just broaden our horizons so much. Um, beyond that, I'm really curious, um, what do you think a world without disinformation or misinformation would look like? Like, does that world exist? Can it ever exist? I don't think that world can ever exist. I think misinformation is basically as old as humanity. So I really like this analogy in thinking of social learning. I mean, so humans are social learners, entirely social learners. I mean, we find out the vast majority of the things we know from other people rather than by testing the world around us ourselves. And this is extremely important to us. Um, but I think of this as like opening a door where once we can communicate with each other, we can share ideas, we can teach each other things, we can pass good things and true beliefs, but through that door, we're also going to be passing false beliefs, bad ideas. Um, so as soon as we can communicate, sometimes we're going to be communicating things that aren't true, right? And that's not going away. The question is, how bad is it and how well can we manage it and how can we protect you know, the function of our democracy, our ability as a society to make good decisions about policy and our day-to-day -day lives, despite the fact that as humans, we always are gonna have some misinformation spreading. And in order to do that, to make you know, our informational environments cleaner and better, there's a lot of things we can do just to tamp down misinformation as much as possible, to make it matter as little as possible, to make it so there isn't a ton of it. Um, and if we look at a lot of traditional media, we found ways to do that. I mean, you can trust most major newspapers to have very few false claims and misinformation in them because they have fact checkers and they have reputations to uphold. So we know we can create institutions that do this. And the question is, how can we move those institutions to the internet? How can we shape our social media so that it also acts as an institution that protects our beliefs in some sort of effective way? Uh, that's like very powerful, I think. Um, <laughs> I just think, you know, we all use social media so much and I think most people these days are also trying to stay informed and read the news and it's hard to kind of balance what is right and how we can kind of get that overall look at what's going on in the world. So that's like just good information. Um, kind of on a lighter note, um, this is a two-parter question, I guess, if you would like to answer it that way. So we're curious what your favorite piece of propaganda or falsity is. And you can, you know, look at it as either like 
the most interesting, the funniest, both. Uh, we were curious about that as well. Oh my gosh. There's so many options and how can I ever choose among them? Uh, oh, I'm just like completely drawing a blank, but I'll tell you a funny story, which I mean, this was started before the internet. So as a kid, someone told me, and like, maybe you heard this too, that um, daddy long legs, you know, these long legged spiders are the most poisonous spiders in the world but their mouths are so tiny that they cannot bite you as a human and therefore they are safe. I literally believed this until I was doing a podcast talking about the misinformation age and the host brought this up as an example of a false rumor that many people believe. And as he was saying it, I was like, oh, of course that one's not true. <laughs> so there's a little bit of fake news. <laughs> Yeah, I think um, among all of the like really, I would say disheartening pieces of fake news, it's really interesting to hear about like th things that you just thought were like logically correct that turn out to be like absolutely not true. Like I definitely have a lot of those stories. Like I think um, like the tooth fairy is like <laughs> something that so many people believe in that's just like objectively like of course your parents put money under your pillow and sorry to all of our listeners who still believe in the tooth fairy i hate to have spoiled that for you but um just to wrap up um i guess our final question is like especially for students who are trying to stay up to date on news and like do research do you have any sort of um, rules of thumb or tips and tricks to share on how to pick out misinformation on websites that like aren't bound by a fact checker like Twitter or how do we as a society like make sure that we are looking at information that is false and pick out things that are not? Yeah, so the first thing I would say is when you're looking at information and trying to decide, do I think this is real or not? Look to the source rather than the sharer. So as humans, we tend to use these heuristics where we look at like a person who shared something and we ask, do, we, do I trust them? Do I like them? Are they a friend of mine? and we trust some people more than others, but we should really be asking, where is this information coming from? Is it coming from a fact-checked site with a good reputation, or is it coming from a website with a title like USA Political News dot com org, uh, you know, just some like random fake news website. Uh, so that's one thing that people should always do. Another thing to be cautious of is that it can be very easy to quickly share things that accord with the worldview you have already. So this is called confirmation bias. It's widespread, everybody does this. Um, if you see something that seems kind of too good to be true almost, maybe take an extra minute and do a little more research. If something sounds like so spot on and perfect to you, often it's something that was made up by uh, someone else online. There's a reason it sounds so attractive. Ditto things that sound really surprising or novel, like a scientific finding way out of the mainstream, take an extra minute because again, like 
misleading content or um, disinformation is often created to be super surprising and novel. And it's made that way because it spreads faster that way. But that's one thing that makes it different from real life content, which is often not, you know, is constrained by reality and often not so surprising and novel. Um, yeah, so all of those are some little ways people can try to look at the content they see and decide, is this trustworthy or not? Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for all of your wisdom. That is unfortunately all the time we have, but we so appreciate you taking the time and to all of our listeners, stay hungry. Stay hungry.